Congress, divided over nearly everything, can't decide on an issue with long-term implications for the Veterans Affairs Department. Keep putting billions of dollars into the troubled Electronic Health Records Project or cut bait and modernize the legacy system, VISTA. VA technicians, they've been using that one for decades. The Biden administration wants to push on with the new system. House Republicans are asking VA how long it can run the old VISTA system. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. The Department of Veterans Affairs is telling Congress a new multi-billion dollar electronic health record from vendors Oracle and Cerner is the best way to provide care for its patients, despite a troubled rollout and House lawmakers threatening to pull the plug on the project. The Oracle Cerner project is running behind schedule and over budget. It's gone live at five of 171 VA medical centers across the country, but further launches are on hold until at least this summer, while the VA troubleshoots persistent outages and patient safety issues flagged by its inspector general. Implementation of the EHR project was expected to cost $16 billion over 10 years, but an independent third-party assessment finds the VA will likely spend more than twice that. The Biden administration in its fiscal 2024 budget request is asking for nearly $2 billion to keep funding the Oracle Cerner EHR. But top Republicans on the House VA committee say the administration is throwing good money after bad on a lemon of a project. Instead, House Republicans are calling on the VA to put that money towards patching up the old reliable station wagon that is Vista, the legacy EHR that clinicians have been using for 40 years. Regardless of what Congress as a whole will support, the VA in the near term, and to extend this automotive metaphor, will be a two-car household. In essence, we are supporting two EHR systems simultaneously until the Cerner implementation is complete. That's Daniel McCune, VA's Executive Director of Software Product Management. He told the House VA Committee's Subcommittee on Technology Modernization last week that the VA will need to rely on VISTA for at least another five to ten years, if not longer. In the interim, VISTA remains our authoritative source of veteran data. McCune says the VA plans to modernize VISTA over the coming years to provide uninterrupted care to veterans, but he tells lawmakers there are limits to what VISTA can provide compared to more modern health record systems. VISTA is an old technology, ill-suited for the modern digital age. Modernization would require VISTA be rewritten almost from scratch at a great cost and great risk. McCune says the VA plans to modernize VISTA over the coming years to provide uninterrupted care to veterans, but he tells lawmakers there are limits to what VISTA can provide compared to more modern health record systems. VISTA has served VA and veterans for over 40 years, and we are aware of its limitations. It doesn't have modern capabilities like artificial intelligence, machine learning, mobile and web access, and capabilities providers and veterans expect and deserve from a modern cloud-native EHR. McCune says VA has moved 20 instances of Vista to the cloud so far and plans to migrate another 54 instances of Vista to the cloud before the end of this year. McCune estimates that each migration of Vista to the cloud costs the VA about $70,000. The VA originally intended to complete the rollout of the Oracle Cerner EHR over 10 years. It first went live in October 2020 in Spokane, Washington. But the VA has been in an assess and address period since last October to address known issues with the EHR and to determine whether it's ready to launch at additional sites. The EHR delays and disruptions have frustrated congressional leaders, chief among them Technology Modernization Subcommittee Chairman Matt Rosendale. The reality is, regardless of whether the Oracle Cerner implementation can be accomplished and regardless of how we feel about that, the VA will probably continue to rely on VISTA for at least another decade. 
And some of the elements of VISTA will probably never go away because no replacement even exists. Medical centers all over the country and the veterans they serve cannot be left in limbo. Rosendale is leading two new bills that would alter the course of VA's EHR rollout. One bill would prevent the VA from implementing the Oracle Cerner EHR at additional facilities until the system has achieved a 99.9% uptime at VA medical facilities that are already running the new system. Another separate bill would force the VA to completely pull the plug on the Oracle Cerner EHR. While Rosendale is urging the VA to keep modernizing VISTA rather than proceed with the Oracle Cerner rollout, agency officials say the VISTA system is running on borrowed time. McCune, however, says it's not clear just how long the VA will need to keep VISTA around. On the VISTA side of the house, we are cognizant that is an interim solution that end date is indeterminate at this point. So we are making investments in VISTA to make sure that it is resilient. We maintain the level of performance that we have today. So we are not stopping work on VISTA. We realize it's going to be around for a long time. Part of the problem is that VISTA runs in part on an outdated programming language called MUMPS. The VA employs a team of MUMPS programmers to support VISTA, but about 70% of them are eligible to retire. And McCune says MUMPS programmers are hard to come by. There are few MUMPS programmers today. MUMPS is not taught in computer science classes, and the pool of MUMPS programmers shrinks every year as they retire. The VA has yet to see those retirement-eligible programmers leave the agency. The VA had more than 1,100 full-time employees working on VISTA in 2022, nearly the same level of staffing it had a decade ago. But McCune says the retirement eligibility of the VISTA workforce has been creeping up year over year. VA is fortunate to have dedicated MUMPS programmers supporting VISTA. They understand millions of lines of code developed over 40 years, and they also understand VA clinical business processes. They're committed to enabling clinicians, supporting veteran outcomes, and we've been able to retain them and their knowledge much longer than a typical workforce. McCune also says the VA is struggling to keep VISTA integrated with the rest of its more modern network. VISTA is a member of VA's expansive and complex ecosystem of software and infrastructure. The size and complexity of that technology ecosystem has nearly doubled in the last five years, and most of that growth has been in modern cloud-native applications. MUMPS programmers are increasingly challenged keeping VISTA integrated in a growing ecosystem that is architected very differently from the system designed 40 years ago. Regardless of how well VISTA can perform for the future, current employees seem to enjoy it. In a survey of VA employees using the Oracle Cerner EHR, 78% of respondents said it didn't help them deliver high-quality care, but 64% said the VISTA system did help them provide quality care to veterans. McCune says the VA workforce is accustomed to how well the VISTA system operates and that more training is needed for employees to feel comfortable with the Oracle Cerner system. With VISTA, we have a relatively stable system one that's been in production for 40 years. So our clinicians, our users are very, very familiar with that system. What we also have happening is a brand new system, a Cerner system. So I think there is some element of change management there. There's some element of newness that has to be considered there. VA's Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Health for Clinical Services, Thomas O'Toole, says the VISTA EHR isn't able to provide some functions that are available in more modern healthcare systems, but he does say the VISTA system is familiar to VA clinicians. There is a muscle memory associated with using it for quite some time that I believe providers are comfortable with. They know how to use it. They know how to navigate the system, and it's worked well for us. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. 
Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who 
were ten times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart 
or anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.